0: Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people about how they do their thing, how they hang in there through all the ups and downs. And today my guest is Judy Carter. She is a comedian and a writer and a magician and an actor, and she has a new show all about her life and career. It's called A Death Defying Escape. It's showing at the Hudson uh, Guild Theater here in Los Angeles through May 8th. But it's also streaming, so if you listen to this and you're like, gosh, I wish I could see that, you can see it, and you can go to deathdefyingescape.com to learn how. And I loved the show so much. Um, It talks about her family life, how she used magic to escape, and how she evolved into comedy and then fell in love with somebody decades younger than her and how her life just sort of blossomed um, in her 60s and I was just inspired by it. It's so well done. It's so well written and performed and the magic is seamless and the props and the music just everything about it is top-notch and I highly recommend it. It's one of the best things I've seen in a while but before we get to the interview with Judy I want to remind you there are now two ways you can enjoy Dennis Anyone. You can listen as you always do or you can become a subscriber subscriber or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. For twelve ninety five a month, you'll get access to my show 48 hours early, and you'll also be able to get lots of other great shows on the DNR Studios network. So go to dnrstudios.com to learn more, and if you subscribe and say that Dennis Anyone is the show you listen to most, you'll get a little kickback. So nothing wrong with that. Also, we have a voicemail if you want to leave a comment or a question about the show. The number is one eight 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 six four seven nine six five three, and I might play it on the show. All right, that's enough. Uh, um, All right, that's enough of the plugs. Here now is the interview with Judy Carter, the star and writer of A Death Defying Escape. Joining me now from Venice Beach, California, it's Judy Carter, the star of A Death Defying Escape, a show that I saw just last Sunday and I loved it so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Yay. Welcome. Let me just get off my surfboard in Venice Beach. Right.
0: I may, I wanted to make it sound very sun soaked. But you you uh you do enjoy you there's snowboarding footage of you in the show. You like yes. to run. I love that. You like to get out and mix it up
1: yeah at my age snowboarding is like I'm the best and fastest snowboarder on the slopes because I'm the only person in my age group like I say in the play they call us grays on trays
0: but (laughs) well I tried skiing for the first time about eight years ago and it was soul crushing I couldn't do it at all I just really it it was like an existential crisis for me because I thought everyone loves this stuff I'm gonna try it and I I did not have a A good experience, but I'll try again, maybe with a private teacher, but um, let's talk about your show. You are a magician and a comedian, and you fuse the two to tell a story about your life. And how long has the show been in the works? Because to me, every detail felt thought through, every prop, every, the writing, the way it moves back and forth in time, everything felt like crafted and well thought out. And so I had to wonder how long has this been in the works?
1: It's been in the works five years, um, five years, and mostly during COVID, that was very, very intense work on it. And I definitely wanted to come out of the pandemic with with something to right. show for those those years of you know being at home. So during the pandemic, I was very, very busy and very focused on this because right before the pandemic hit i had a version of this play and i went oh it's great it's perfect it's it's really great and i did a reading of it i just rented a theater and did a reading of it and it was horrible it was long it was uh, something that a lot of autobiographical plays are absolute narcissism. You know, look at me. And then this happened to me. And then this happened to me. And I went, I, I just don't want to be another one of those people. And so it took considerable revisioning. also, you know, um, anybody out there who is trying to write uh, either a stand-up material or any kind of autobiographical material, it really t- takes a village. You know, it really takes... Um, getting my neighbor, who is a playwright, (laughs) who I met online during COVID in so many of these writer Zoom rooms, and just uh, getting people to look at it and trying to figure out what is it about. Now, um, we all know trying to figure out the meaning of our life is like, what? what is this all about? Right. What where
0: is, this is this show all about? Like, <laughs> well, what yeah, where is, is this, this going? It? What is this saying? Exactly. It feels random and, and haphazard.
1: Yeah. I mean, how do we define our lives and have it meaningful to other people? That's that's the big question.
0: Right. And have it resonate. So, how would you describe the show to someone that knew nothing about it, who just saw the flyer and you're like, this is my show and this is what it is?
1: Mm. Well, some of the reviews have described it beautifully as far as somebody who had to create magic and comedy in their life um, to escape from a rather abusive childhood uh, with uh, so many issues that as a little kid, you either get crushed by it or you find a way to look at it in a creative way. And that's what this play is about. How can we escape what has happened to us in the past? Not let it trauma the past trauma do- dominate our lives.
0: Define it. And yeah.
1: Find love. So it's at its heart, it's a love story. It goes back and forth between um, childhood and this new blossoming, unexpected, latent life love of my life um with somebody who's literally <laughs> four decades
0: younger than me I, I mean love it it gave me hope you know because i'm a man of a certain age i'm like where's mine you know but that's so <laughs> exciting and and wonderful that that happened
1: isn't it crazy because a lot of us fall into the stereotypes of what does it mean to get older
0: yeah we're done and
1: We're done. All right. That was that. And now I guess I'm going to go on some travel. That's what I'll do. I'm going to travel. Well, before you travel forward, you really have to travel to the back to the past and take care of some unfinished business Yes, and literally escape from it. So in this play, um, as I say, um, I became a magician not because I wanted to saw women in half. I wanted to put them back together. So I had an alcoholic, abusive father, and I and I had like I wanted to fix my mother. I wanted to restore her, so maybe she could take care of us. Maybe she
0: could protect us. Right, something.
1: And yes, yeah, so this is acted out on stage using the mat- metaphor of magic, and at death, the fine escape. We, I was fortunate enough to work with a magic designer. Isn't that a cool job? <laughs>
0: yeah. Craig Dickens, I wrote down, is his name, right? <laughs>
1: yes. Yes, Dennis. Craig Dickens. Um, what's so great working with uh, someone as brilliant as Craig Dickens, who's designed magic illusions for the likes of David Copperfield, was to go, you know, how do we do this? I really want to vanish from childhood Trauma. I mean, I want to vanish. I mean, I want in in a, in a small, intimate audience. I want to completely vanish. And yeah. how do we do that? I wanted to break free of the restraints that have hold me down, held me down for so many years.
0: Like Houdini, who I you reference that. in the show, like you wanted to Houdini your own life.
1: Yes, and so he's a a genius at at this and. And so it was very exciting. We were like two kids. We could do this. We could do that. And some things we can't do. We'll have to save it for the Broadway version. Right. Um, like I wanted to levitate my disabled sister out of her wheelchair. And wow, can you imagine how cool that would be? Yeah. So I was very interested in magic, which is usually um, kind of like family oriented, you know. right.
0: Fun for the whole family, you know. Yeah.
1: And I wanted to give it emotional significance. Well, for know, Craig and...
0: it must have been different than any other kind of assignment that he'd ever gotten like to dig deep into such an emotional story. It must have been appealing to him as a challenge like how do we tell this kind of story with magic?
1: Oh yeah, I mean when I first met him and uh we recreated this oversized chair that uh, my father strapped me into at, um, when I was a kid. Um, and then it became, I grew up to become a, you know, a neurotic Jew, big surprise, um, of, with, with a lot of claustrophobia issues, a lot of, um, you know, how these, these things affecting me and also affecting the ability to trust other people.
0: Sure. So it, we, it almost destroys your relationship. Away? Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think that's the big question that the play asks is how do we break away from those things that have happened to us in the past and you know, not letting it dominate our lives. And so many people right now um, feel so dominated by maybe not what they went through as a child, but maybe what they went through in the pandemic. And there right. is an excess of... Uh, mental illness right now, and people really struggling with depression, struggling with things. And how do we break out of that? And I do believe, like we started this conversation with snowboarding, and you said you couldn't ski, right? There's, there's something in that that is a trust. And you have to actually everything in your body says in backwards and avoid the slope, right? Yeah. Like, lean back, and that's how you fall, and then you slip and fall. So, it's this act of trust to throw yourself down a mountain, trusting that your board or your skis will turn under you and catch you. But it's that trust. You have you know, to be willing to
0: lean forward. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you have, you can't do it if you're going slow. Uh. So, how do you, how do you get your body to trust? And I think that's a, Huge question in the play as far as that moment of somebody who wants to love me, me being unable to and mistrustful to actually reach out and have love in my life.
0: Right. You didn't trust it. You didn't trust that it could be real and that it would work out. Um, No. yeah. You have a background in comedy and magic, but this show requires real dramatic acting was that daunting to you or have you done that in the past or were you excited about that challenge? Like there are scenes in there that are very, um, pretty intense.
1: Yeah. Aren't they? Um, yes, they are. And you I, and I mean, you pull them
0: sh- off beautifully, but it oh. feels like it's different than probably what you you've done for a lot of your career.
1: Yes. My career has mostly been, um, comedy and, um, you know, I wrote a book called The New Comedy Bible, which, by the way, today it's uh, number one on Amazon. I just looked. That's I amazing. Look, and I looked, and I went, and so we just did the happy dance around here. It was very exciting. And when did it come out? It came out two years ago, wow. uh, or a year and a half ago, um, right before the pandemic hit. And and um, and I just looked today, and I went, "Holy shit!"
0: it's you. number one uh, in number this one category well done yeah
1: and it's 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 been quite a great book and the reason i'm mentioning this isn't you know to like oh, go buy my book for 8 dollars it's it's like i mention it because at the core of everything i do is is something that we've all heard about comedy which is comedy is tragedy plus time yeah well, at my age, I've had plenty of time, <laughs> right. right? And I, when I teach comedy, which I've done, you know, uh, for many, many years, we start off with what's wrong with your life. Like, what's what's rather than like civilians go, "Hello, how are you? I'm fine. Hello, how are you? Good, good." And we all lie. Well, comics are, hello, how are you? I'm getting really old. You know? right. Hello, how are you? I'm divorced. I'm right. living alone. Hello, I'm depressed. woo Right. And we transform our problems into punchlines. Because if you start comedy with, like, hey, Viagra and dick jokes and boob jokes and what have you, um, you end up with hacked material. So, at the core of everything I've done my whole life is that thing of That whatever's happened in our lives, like, turn your mess into a success by joking about it. Like, when we laugh at a problem, the joke becomes uh, deeper, more effective, and uh, cooler, you know? And so my whole life, I I mean, that's what comics do. Um, I'm interested to see how my book just got bought by China, and I'm interested how that goes because... In certain cultures, shame is not funny. It's right. like, oh, I just broke up with someone. Oh, that's horrible. You know, they they don't get the notion of I can't get laid, I can't lose weight, you know.
0: Yeah, they and come, at, they come at those humor. things differently. Yeah. Um
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So the so the dramatic stuff in the play was was something that was always there. It's just sort of expressing it. it, it in a, in a well, it's the reason way. I
1: became a comic. Yeah,
0: so it, Elements, it was not yeah. that hard to tap into. It was always there. Um,
1: yeah, well, my career started as I was um, a U- graduate USC with a theater degree and, and did some plays, the Odyssey Theater and everything, and I was getting reviewed, like, horrible play, bad script. Judy was great, right? And I went, hmm, this is not working for me. Um, so that's when I uh, developed... Uh, an act and at the time I was a magician and I just took my act on the road and it, and it hit, it just hit. So I was doing like four uh, cable comedy specials. I did over a hundred television shows as a magician. And then when my tricks one day didn't show up, I had to go on.
0: Right. I read that. The lost luggage changed your life.
1: Yes. And then I became a comic, but, um, and and uh, you know so as far as the drama of the play i've always believe i've i've had that talent but i wasn't a successful actress or had an acting career because i um couldn't handle the auditions oh. i just couldn't handle them i i just would um <laughs> i remember i'd always assume after i left they would go oh God, that was awful. One time, I even sometimes I like get a tape record, a little tape record, put in my purse, do the audition, leave, and then go. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot my purse. And oh my God!
0: That's so destructive to like you're playing with fire. So you'd run back in and get your purse,
1: and then I would hear what they said, what- which was always like, "Man, eh, she doesn't have the right color hair." Right or like yeah, that was fine. Who's next? It was like, like it but in my head, it was.
0: It wasn't the most revealing thing. Wow. I,
1: I just didn't have the psychological makeup to be an actor. I love actors. I I just I couldn't do it. Right. So I I just was too. Just didn't have it. In yeah. Me, um, to do that. So I'm really grateful that now, late in life, I could um, do drama. I could do comedy. I, you know, I I, I could do it. And there's, this is not a one-person show. This is, we have um, two incredible actors who switch parts, play different characters. Um, Lindsay LaRose, incredible, gorgeous woman, so talented. And Kevin Allen Scott, who plays um, rather menacing characters in it. And uh, as well as um, my,
0: lovely grandmother. Yes, he's he funny. does a lot of different roles. I actually know Kevin and uh he's oh, so great. sweet. So seeing him playing those those darker characters was like interesting. And I met uh Lindsay afterwards and I had actually seen you and your girlfriend, wife. I'm not sure if you're married. Partner. Partner. I saw yeah, you Yeah I got married
1: once and right. I don't think I'm doing that again.
0: I saw you at our at my friend um Wendy Hammer's storytelling night so mm. right where you guys tell your story of how you met so when i saw Lindsay in the show i'm like she reminds me of the real one like i, I thought of, when i first saw her i thought oh is that her partner playing herself because they they reminded me of each other so well done with they the casting do, do they, they remind do. you of each
1: other well um well of course I do, especially right. when we're kissing but um uh, <laughs> On stage, but um, it was so funny on opening night. They both came wearing the exact same outfit, so that was weird. Oh, that's
0: <laughs> hilarious! Well, that means yeah, you cast that's... well. It means you cast well.
1: Well, my partner Anna, who's um, very talented in her own right, um, uh, we were looking at the casting, and she was going like, "No, that one is too." Not attractive enough to play me. And then she saw Lindsay and she goes, oh, no, she's too hot. She's she can't just... <laughs> play me. I don't want her near you.
0: Right. You really had to get it just right. Yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious. Um, You mentioned the chair earlier that's part of the show. It is yeah. a very forbidding prop. Like, it's big and heavy. You really had to get that right, right? Was it hard to build and create that uh, particular prop?
1: Well, the chair... um, as I said in the beginning of, of our little podcasting, um, that I, I, the, cha- the whole play was a disaster um, until I really realized that it really is the story of this chair, and this chair was built by my father, a mechanical engineer. Uh, For his my older sister Marsha, who had severe spastic cerebral palsy, and at the time wheelchairs were like pantyhose, one size fits all. Right, right? they were not customized, so my sister would always be sliding out of her chair, and so he built this beautiful contraption. Right, um, and uh, with that is very scary looking, but. That's how things were for the disabled back then where everybody had to kind of jerry-rig a right. kind of apparatus.
0: Introduced as this loving thing, right? That, that he made it him the was, perfect chair. Yes.
1: This was a, a beautiful, beautiful chair. And then as the play progresses, it becomes an instrument of torture. But um, so what I realized is, and this is when I kind of got what the play was really about, Um was when you write a play or you write a screen or you write anything, there's a certain wheel of dramatic structure of, of a course from here to there and transitions and what happens. And I, when I got it that, um, and I put the, in the wheel, it, it was the story of the chair, right. everything, everything sort of fell together and I think, uh, you know, those of uh, you who are listening to this and writing something, it just takes time. It really takes time because it was after years in the middle of the night, 3 a.m. I woke up and I went, oh, it's about the chair. And it's like this. Right. And it's I, this just, eureka I got moment. on my phone. and I recorded it. And I went, it's the chair. It's the chair. It's about the chair. And then I um, I got the bones of, of the play. So the chair was the first thing that was built for this play.
0: Well, it it's an impressive it. looking prop it, it <laughs> yeah. lives up to its role in, in terms of the way it looks and seems. And also your show feels thought out. It feels like that work, n- not in a labored way, but it's like nothing felt arbitrary or left to chance or slapdash. It was like, it was very impressive. So I think it it uh, is a tribute to how hard you worked on it and fine tuned it and Threw stuff out and. Thank you. Yeah. It can, it, it Dennis, shows. what
1: did you what did you leave the the theater feeling like? How did it affect you?
0: That we've all had things that that we've gone through in our past that affect the way we move through the world, and we can pretend that they didn't happen, or we can pretend that we're over it, but we're not. And uh, I've had similar things like that, not not in that same way, but something that's like. When I put something together about my past, it affected the way I moved through the world in such a dramatic way. And and once I sort of reckoned with it or kind of connected the dots in a way. So that was one thing that I really related to. Also, I got hope for finding love um, with a hot 20 something. I mean, it (laughs) feels like uh, that's the way to go. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: And also, I, no, well, no, it's not the way to go. <laughs> I don't think it's not the way to go. You have to learn a whole different language, right. you have to listen to totally different music. It's just like,
0: right, there's some joke stay about up like late. Well, there's a joke that, that it's like it, it's always easy to get reservations when you eat dinner at five o'clock or something like yeah. that. Yeah, oh,
1: in the play. I yeah, said, yeah. well, what have you learned from me? And she says, well, what making dinner res. Well, you don't need to make reservations when eating dinner at five p.m. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah.
0: I was the volunteer you pulled up on stage.
1: Oh, that's right. And so,
0: we, you did uh, a yeah. you did a close-up magic trick with me, and um, it was kind of fun to be up there and interesting. And I have to be honest, there was a moment where I thought it messed up, which is part of the thing. And of course, it didn't. Mm-hmm. But I really went there, and I was like, oh shit, it screwed it, it screwed up the trick, but it didn't. But that's kind of where you want us to go. But I did genuinely have that moment sitting up there. I was like, you know which, what I'm talking about near the end of the trick where it looks like, you know, the card that I, the card ends up being on the table or whatever. But I had that yeah. moment of like, uh-oh. This didn't, it, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, all, that's all part of the thing. You talk about doing c- close-up magic at the Magic Castle and and you ask me while I'm on stage to name a famous female musician. And of course I can c- come up with anything. And there aren't any, and yet you were the first to do close-up magic in the Magic Castle, and you literally get carried out.
1: You yeah, I got carried out. by Literally a picked up and carried out. Italian Tony Giorgio. Women don't belong in this room. Stick to cards. and. Re-. He actually couldn't do this in the play. But um, he actually picked me up, threw me over his shoulder. I'm screaming, you know, put me down. All the magicians are going, oh, this is so funny. And he actually takes me outside, carried me, throws me in the parking lot. Now, back then, you know, we thought, okay, this is funny. Ha ha. You know, we don't realize the extent of it. Now we do because the Magic Castle is being sued for sexual harassment, unfairness, discriminatory Practices, LGBTQ community, and and women. Um, So, yeah, we're taking it seriously now with lawsuits. But, um, and now they're making a huge effort because they have to financially to, you know, to be more inclusive and, um, diversity and, you know, and magic women were always used as, you know, props.
0: Yes. They were the assistants and and they were the contortionists that figured out how to do those tricks. And I worked on cruise ships. So I worked with a number of magicians and assistants and they always had the most interesting dynamics. Like they were married, but they weren't that they slept with other people. Like it was fascinating. The magician and the assistants. (laughs) Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. Um, because if, uh, it's kind of like a metaphor for uh, life is the woman seems to be doing a lot of the work. You right. Know? And
0: the man does she the bow. You can't
1: eat anything. She has to fit into very small places. Yeah. She can't really gain weight. And yeah. you're like scrunching your body up. You're, you're and, and the guy's just like pointing, pretending he's in charge. Yeah. And then at the end, she steps back, points to the man. He takes the bow. And, um, you know, there aren't any female magicians because there's a history of this as uh, women who had any kind of power to alter reality were called witches and they're burned at the stake. And certainly all through the Hillary campaign, she was referred to as, you know, a witch and a bitch. And and all this stuff. And you know, it's still it's still going on. So, um, there still to this day aren't any famous female magicians because uh, the idea that a woman could really alter your reality is terrifying. Right. So women People can't have learned to it. do this kind of underhandedly or passively or Look what I did. So when I was doing magic, I had to pretend to be a complete friggin'
0: idiot because it's like, oh, did I do that? <laughs>
1: right. And you you couldn't
0: like, have authority oh, around yeah, it. It was too threatening. No. What it kept you going back after they, after they literally carry you out? What, what was that thing in your personality that was like, no, I'm going to push up against this?
1: Yes. Well, it was really, as in the play, I was asked to perform for the national organization for women.
0: Yes, and in North Dakota. This is the
1: best. Oh well, no! Life. I was in North Dakota opening for uh, Mr. Boodles and his Dancing Boodles at Teddy Roosevelt Park and oh, doing a right. magic show.
0: That's when you got so the offer.
1: What, yes, and um, and that's when I really shifted and started to do more of a satirical bent of sawing a man in half. And, right, and you have a man in a gold hostile.
0: bikini. Yes. She's
1: so hostile, but yeah. they didn't,
0: like,
1: people got the joke, got it. But right. um, at that time, it was radical, you know? Because it was something we accept that a man will torture a woman, decapitate her, saw in half, light her and fire, and it's family entertainment. Right. A woman does it. Oh, my God, hostility. And so, you know, here I'm doing this at very conservative places all throughout the U.S., and people not really getting together getting you know what this what i really was doing but once i started to um make a point about the magic you know and and yeah you know escaping from a straitjacket i escaped from my grandmother's girdle and yeah and i did that and uh, you know it it got to be super funny and and I got funnier and funnier doing it. And then finally, I just let go of the magic um, because it was um, too much of a, a schlep,
0: you know. Right. You're just like, oh, I can just talk. I don't have to bring all this stuff. There it is. Yeah. So
1: is. I'm enough. I think it was like, I think I'm enough.
0: Wow. That must <laughs> have been a relief. Enough. That must have been a relief and like a good feeling.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, to this day, like I had a co- uh, Monday, I, Tuesday couple of days ago I had a gig in Palm Springs um for I do corporate gigs now where I have a message and I talk about this whole notion of turning your problems into punchlines and that stress is the laughing matter and yeah showing people the how to look at life the way a stand up comic does and and every time I go on stage and I don't have any magic, I don't have any props, nothing. I just go out there and it's me holding a mic. And I get paid you know, uh, good money for it. And it's, it's so thrilling to, in one's career to just reduce it, reduce all the gimmetry, reduce it all to just a message. And so that, that was very exciting and has been exciting for me.
0: I love that. I host virtual game nights online that I developed with a friend. We, we created a box game and started doing it during the pandemic, but, It's evolved into a corporate team building thing that I do over Zoom. And there is something about working in the corporate world for an artist that feels very straightforward. Oh, you just do your thing and they give you the check. It's not loaded with a lot of the show business stuff, right? I don't know if it's where I'd want to live all the time. But, boy, is it like, oh, it's we're doing Microsoft today. They're probably going to pay on time. Like, you know, there's. do you know what I'm talking and about? And they're going to pay me more than a sandwich. Yes, right? There's something about it that's like corporate gigs are, there's something good about them, right?
1: Well, you know, people um, don't realize that even the, the most famous comics, we we all make, not that I'm, I'm not a, at all a famous comic, but we make the bulk of our money from corporates. I mean, Jay Leno would say, I haven't spent one penny of my tonight show money. I, you know, cause he makes it all from corporates because they pay performers just a lot of money. Yeah. And, and, and it's, even if you're not a celebrity, if you have a, a message, right. that you're doing um, or you can, You have you affect their ROI, like their return on investments like you're doing, like team building. Yeah. Right? So team building, I'm helping them be more effective as a company. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. And here's the thing with corporates, we're all people. I don't care if you're in a comedy club or anywhere, you we're people. And if you go to these corporate meetings, they're really friggin' boring. You just want to Okay. Yeah, I sat with a pencil. It's like they're droning on, and now my hundredth and ten, you know, PowerPoint slide, all with little tiny fonts on it and bullets in it, and when I come out. And, and I go, okay, people, this is going to be a little different. You know, it's different for me. Usually, you know, it's 8 a.m. And I'm going to make you laugh. Right. Usually I'm talking to people who are drunk, not people who are hungover. So get ready for something different. Right. And you see them, like, light up. And, yeah. Ah. And so that's, it's just people. I don't care if you're, you know, have a job, you're doing it in corporate or you're doing it at a comedy club. You know, you got to really be good to make people laugh at 8 friggin a.m. That's,
0: that's <laughs> right. And you know what? I think I, I have that experience, too. We've done games at 6 a.m. because we're doing people in different countries and 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 you see them oh, light like up that? and it's and it, like they're expecting it to be super dry and like, ugh, we have to do this thing. And then they're like, oh, this is fun. And that's a cool moment to, to see them uh, go there. You talk about performing for the National Organization of Women. You You got an offer to do that and kind of finding yourself there in a way or, or realizing that you're, you're gay. Is that right?
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> realizing. Did you have an I inkling stay. before that? Well, I had, let's see. No, it really was the way it happened in the play where I just hear Holly Near sing this song and I go, there's something about the women, in my life. And I go, yes, there is. Oh my God, I'm gay. And I was just leaving for at the time to play a playboy club. And there I am in the bunny locker room, and going <laughs> oh my God, and um, you know hef I did a show, and Heff was there, and he invites me with Barbie Benton to come to the playboy. It was just this crazy kind of like "How do I do this now?" But I came out like late in life, and it took me a long time to figure it all out. Coming out, and as I say in the play, big deal, Houdini escaped from, like, chains and ropes, right. you know, right? I mean, uh, try try escaping from the closet in the 80s. It wasn't like it is now. There right. was no online, and I could connect with a lot of people and go, how do I do this? Right. I don't know. And, you know, we there was, <laughs> it was, you couldn't just instantly figure it out it was very confusing and complicated and um and back then it was like illegal it was really considered perversity and which also made the sex a lot hotter right i mean it was like wow are we doing something so bad right now it's like oh we're married
0: yeah where this is illegal what we're doing in in like yeah what we're doing
1: is so illegal it's sizzling (laughs) <laughs> right. it was like, and you know i think it takes real time for even nowadays for people to find their to belong to a group of like-minded people who get you and understand you and um and that's another thing this play has created that we have um wonderful groups like uh Um, We have the uh, gay synagogue that's coming. BCC in LA is coming uh, as reserved tonight. And we have uh, Jewish queers that are coming. We have um, um, Andrea Meyerson's group coming this Sunday, April 10th, um, to the show, uh, Women on a Roll. And so it's so great that because the play has Jewish jokes and uh, old jokes about being old and the, the age gap relationship, right. and then we have a lot of like jokes about Carol and Kate Blanchett.
0: Yes. How many times have you, you seen Carol?
1: <laughs> uh, I saw it twice. Twice, <laughs> okay, all right, that's that's <laughs> but, enough. But you could tell, like, like sometimes I go, "Oh, she wants to see me a movie, Carol." Yeah. And sometimes, like, the entire audience will just crack up, and we go, "All right, we got a lot the- of lesbians in the crowd tonight." <laughs> right. All right.
0: Was <laughs> that really nothing? Was that really like one of your first dates with, with your, Uh, was Carol?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was so dense here. I am, you know, this really beautiful young girl who was, you know, I met, um, she was in an audience, one of my shows and, and uh, she was going to help me with social media. So we started hanging together and then she said, "Um, I think we should be friends. I don't want to work for you. And, I was confused by it. I, right. You know, she's a millennial. Yeah. I'm a baby boomer. I mean, this is crazy. So it never crossed my mind that she was interested in me that way. And and then um, I remember one moment during that movie, which is in the play, that I thought about it. And I went, is she? And I felt like, my God, if I just held her hand and she was into that, I I would just disintegrate.
0: I would explode, and then I,
1: I would explode. And then I went, well, of course she isn't. And how pathetic am I, thinking that yeah. you know I'm like Kate Blanchett and this young woman. And I think I say in the play, Kate Blanchett is an old Jew with crepey arms, right? <laughs> Kate Blanchett. I said, I'm even too old to be a cougar. I'm a right. frigging saber tooth tiger, and and I remember I was so down. Meanwhile. Anna was like, uh, she kept trying. Yeah, trying, what's it going to take? When is she going to get a what's clue? Gonna, then she got this idea. She's going to get me drunk, and of course, then I have acid reflux and flux. <laughs> and 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 it, she just kept Judy till yes. she finally just kind of grabbed me and went to kiss me and go, "What the hell are you doing?" And she goes, "Like I've been flirting with you forever." I know that's not possible, and so. Um, I think a lot of times in people's lives, that's what happens. It's like you, you get this idea that, that love is over for you. Maybe you married and you've been married forever. And it, you know, you went, well, you know, sex is over.
0: Right. Or romantic love. It's it's something that they found, but it's not for me. They found that thing, but I, I didn't. And that's okay.
1: No. And I'm too, and we have all too old. I'm too fat. I'm too this. I'm too that. And, um, and I was talking, because I think in the male gay community, men are more used to age gap love. I think it's more accepted in that community, um, but certainly not in the women's community and not in the hetero community. So it was it was sort of like, I mean, how many times do we get? Is this your daughter? Is this your daughter? Is this right. your daughter? And or you're paying for everything, and and, and which is really odd because it says, well, you must be supporting her because otherwise why would she be with you? There's this discounting of older women. Right. And, um, that we aren't sexual and, and, you know, we don't have anything to offer somebody. And I have to tell you, um, you know, we've been, we're going on six years now and, and, it's been the best 6 years of my life. Um I've never felt so alive in my life. I've never been so happy. I've never had such a a a full life with somebody who's you know, I mean I can't get any of my Alta cocker friends to go snowboarding with me. Right, you go do Hamilton fun stuff. They're going like, "Oh, my hip, my this, right. my bad." And they you know, I got just have a knee replacement. Right. And no, I can't. And I know I gotta go to bed and I can't eat this and I can't eat that. And and I have to say, I I I feel fortunate I'm not burdened by that, but that um I have somebody who could, you know, travel the world with me and um
0: Yeah, you have and, adventures. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. You worked with Prince. I saw it in your bio. You opened for Prince. Right.
1: Yeah, that was that was like <laughs> this is before he was big crossover. So his audiences was going to be like I was going to be the only white person in the crowd. And I went like my friends at the comedy store said, you know, don't don't do it. You will. They will hate you. They will eat you alive. They You know, and I I think there's always a solution how you're going to make a gig work. So with that gig, I had an accordion. I it was at the on Sunset on Sunset Strip, it was at the Roxy and he was, you know, big uh, showbiz show. They asked me to open for him. So I stood outside with an accordion with this really cool crowd waiting to go in. And They lined up there for an hour and I played the one song, Lady of Spain, over and over and over again. And they were going, they came in, they go, thank God we don't listen to that street performer. Oh my God. God, right. she's awful. And then they come and they go, Hey, we're here to see Prince. And the audience went like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. And opening the show is Judy Carter. And when I came out with the accordion, the entire uh, audience went, Oh shit. <laughs> and they loved me. I pranked them. They respected it. Right. they
0: Loved, me. right? That because that took chutzpah, and 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 there you were doing your thing. Do you have a favorite memory of Prince? An interaction with him? Yeah, you had?
1: well, you know it. It it was it was when you know he came to my dressing room after my show after we both got you know off stage and um, and first I was floored that he was like my height, which yeah. was like five foot three, <laughs> and um. And that he, and I was so nervous to meet him because he's, I mean, on stage, that man was a phenomenal, um, powerful. Off stage, he was so shy, he couldn't even look at me. He'd look at the floor. He he was so soft-spoken. And he said, "I I just really thought you were really, really so good, and I hope you can, you know, open more of my shows, like, like, like what this is, I, I couldn't put that person backstage with the person on stage. right? And it just, and I, and I just, uh, although we were so different, I, I kind of felt back then I was the same person that I could go out and do incredible things in front of an audience, but in real life, I Kiss right. somebody, how do you do that? <laughs> like I was such a weedy, you know, but, uh, I think that's, I think those of you who want to perform on stage, you don't have to wait until you have confidence. You just know you do it in spite of not having confidence, Interesting. And, and and you just show up, and there it is.
0: And that was something you guys probably connected on this under, yeah, underlying I sense of that. like shyness, and 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 using all the confidence you have on the stage. Um, You grew up in the Fairfax sisters of LA and I spent a fair amount of time when I first moved to LA there. What's your favorite memory of Cantor's Deli? Because you show a slide of it. Oh my God. You show a slide of it in your show and I was like, oh, Cantor's. Oh God. It's an institution.
1: Yeah, I mean, I went to Fairfax High and, you know, really attributed to me being a rather chubby girl back there because we'd walk home and, you know, every day get, you know, some rugula. Right?
0: <laughs> right? I like those black and white cookies.
1: Oh, the black and white cookies, the, rugula, um, the um the corned beef, the pastrami, the uh, stuffed cabbage, and every other Sunday, our families would get together, and we'd have Sunday brunch there, and we'd have the locks, and it was like, oh, it's expensive. We're having locks, and it the locks just, was a
0: treat. Locks was fancy times,
1: and and the waitresses were like, oh yeah, come on, it's time to go already. I mean, they were so authentic. It was it was it was like home. Yeah, <laughs> you were nasty, so you just. You felt like just home.
0: Yeah, it was just your place, and it's still there. It's still hanging in there. I and love it. You.
1: I mean, if if so many we've lost so many great restaurants during the pandemic, but thank God we haven't lost Cantor. It's still there. What later. do you get when you go
0: there? Do you have a thing, or do you mix it up?
1: Yeah, I just get uh, half corned beef, or I get. Um, I get uh um my partner loves their stuffed cabbage.
0: She mm, thinks it's interesting. The best. All right.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I love it. Um your sister plays a big part in the show. Your sister Marsha who you you described earlier. Um I was very touched by your support of her. Like your character as depicted in the play, you were you were always on her side. You were always you always seemed close. It always seemed loving. Um I was touched by that cuz I think I think it could not be easy to be in in that situation, especially when you're a kid and you want attention and i don't know, I was very touched by your connection to your sister in the show um, and-
1: um yeah, it was a difficult situation um because when parents they, I, well, first of all, I don't think they have, like now they have so many programs for the disabled. But back then you had to have a court case, give your child away to an institution. And um, and then after, for 20, 25 years, she just said one word. <gasps> oh, my God. She was just stuck in that. Uh, it, it was It was very painful. And my parents were let it be, leave it alone. Let it be. We don't want to look at it. And I kept going, you know, I was her advocate. I became right. her servitor legally. And, um, I finally did get her a home yeah. after my mom passed. Um, I, I mean, I got her a home yeah. and, 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 and the people who ran that home came to the play.
0: I heard me. that when I was yeah. talking to uh, one of your, the, 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 the female actor's, Parents, I think, mentioned that to me when we were standing on the sidewalk. So the people that, that ran the home that you were able to get for your sister came to see your show. What was that like? Yeah,
1: they, were, they, they couldn't stay around afterwards because they were so moved by it because they truly loved her. And some of these people who work in these um, six-people houses right. um, um, are, I got to say, they, they don't do it to get rich. Yeah. They're, the people who take in the severely disabled... Um, they have to change them. I mean, you're talking about adults who are incontinent, and you're talking about uh, adults who need tube feeding, and adults who need. There is so it is such hard work, and not only do they do that work, but they they love them. They actually love them, and they know them. and And my sister, after 25 years of staying home, stopped because she had a home, and she was loved. And and it was a mother and daughter and I, I just, you know, I mean, they're in my will. They're yeah. they I owe them so much. They're beautiful people.
0: Well, that aspect your relationship was a beautiful part of the story. And Thank to hear you it so and hear it, it still sort of still going on. And and Jerry Jewell was there when I saw it. The uh the comic Oh you that were we, there, at
1: Jerry Jewell. Yeah, yes.
0: the, from Facts of Life, uh that I remember. Cousin Jerry, of course. Um, Jerry
1: was uh, the one, the first, the um, first, um, I think there's a few more, but a uh, uh, comic who has cerebral palsy, she had wonderful jokes. I don't understand why people drink so they can walk like me. You know, yeah. and, and she does, and she was a real groundbreaker, and just, I just love her, and I'm so glad of the success she's had uh, being cast on various TV shows. Yeah. Really
0: Wonderful. You did shatter my illusion of Doug Henning, the magician. Uh you had a you had a a private lesson with him that was not cool.
1: Well, uh Doug was uh, you know, I don't know, back then you know, I look at that scene of him kind of touching my breast while teaching me a magic trick as my problem as well, because I could not say no. I didn't know how to speak up for myself. Or Hey, what are you doing? No, I'm not cold. Anyway, right. you know, so I, you just I freeze. don't look.
0: But I think I that's common fry. for people that have been through things. You just freeze, right? Freeze. Yeah. You,
1: it feels too dangerous to speak up or yeah. you might get hurt or that. And you kind of put up or you kind of squirm away. And most women who grew up before the Me Too movement are used to that kind of like, well, I'll just wiggle my way out of here, but but we, we weren't really taught direct, clear communication. Um, so I, I don't have bad things to say about Doug Henning, except for, you know, in the play, I take it on myself that I just, I couldn't say anything. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and gave the wrong messages. I mean, women back then networking, it just was kind of assumed that you would, you would uh, put out or, I mean, men just collected, helped each other out, climbed the ladder, but women, there was always a sexuality involved with that. Yeah. And, um, which is, was a very complicated game to play. Um, heavily loaded with a lot of subtext and um, yeah.
0: <laughs> but you stuck it out and you navigated it. Like I know friends that were in comedy Uh, My, my, uh, a good friend of mine was like, I just couldn't do that stuff anymore. I, I, I had to, I had to stop. Like they, they, they couldn't, they couldn't navigate it anymore. They got, they, it got too hard or they got too tired of it. How did you manage to move through it and keep going? How did you, how did you stay resilient? I guess in the face of all of it.
1: Well, um, first of all, I did, I, you know, I was, I was gay. And so, um, and once that came out that I was, you know, comics, you know didn 't he really hit on me. I remember one time we played a joke on I was because uh, it was always I was on the road with two other comics. I was the headliner or maybe the middle act, and um, I remember one of the comics he was gay too, and I said, "Why is the headliner not even talking to me?" He goes, "Well, I guess he heard you were gay, so he's not even going to bother talking to you and i said okay let 's play a joke on him so he, um, I got into bed with this other comic. And the headliner came into the room and he said, Oh, come in. And then I went, Oh, and then we reached out and we slept with the other. And right. then he was so pissed. that
0: he <laughs> Right. That he, would, that he had gotten bad information and that there wasn't yeah. a, a possible thing there. Well,
1: I, you know, I gotta say, um, being a female or any kind of comic on the road is really was really tough. Sometimes I was 46 weeks out of the year traveling, performing, it was a very lonely time for me, and um, I have to say, when I was 32, I stopped, and that's when I started to write, and that's when I wrote Comedy Bible and Stand-Up Comedy, the book, and, I, and that's when I, and then I got on Oprah, and then I had a completely different career track um, of teaching and writing that um, was more acceptable to me and not as painful.
0: I love that you were on Oprah. Uh, what, what's your favorite memory of that experience?
1: Well it was weird that she like she they go like, We're picking you up in a limo Yeah, that's and how I she went calls. oh my god, this is this is this is the day of my life. Yeah. This is everything, right? And so she picks up me up at a limo at six AM. The shoot was like 2 p.m. Right. She, they didn't say that they had one limo and was going to go all over the city of L.A. picking up all the others. It was like
0: a super shuttle limo.
1: It was the Oprah's super shuttle.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. But you know what? Being able to say know, you're on so- Oprah, it probably opened doors. It probably, yeah. it, it's something that's always in your bio. And it's like, that's a big deal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was, that was a very, very big deal um, for Oprah. She held up my book on national TV. And by the way, this was the book that was rejected from 59 literary agents. They said, what? No one wants to learn how to become a comic. Right. You know, you can't teach people how to do comedy, but uh, it ends up you can. And so many comics performing today attribute my books from launching their career and helping them write comedy material.
0: Right. I love it. Do you have a sort of a mantra or a sort of attitude about life and approach?
1: Say yes. Say yes to your ideas. Say yes. When people say, hey, can you come and perform here? And you've only done one open mic and you only have five minutes, but they want you to do 30 minutes. Say yes, because you'll get that. You'll get that extra 25 minutes. You know, I, I, also, I don't particularly have goals um, because everything that has happened in my life has been so much better than anything I could imagine. So don't worry about having a five-year plan. It's just go and open, get out of the house Network with people and start saying yes, because it it life becomes then an adventure, an unplanned adventure to lead you from one thing to the next thing to, you know, I really, really could not have imagined um, my life. I thought like I had a dream. okay I want to get a sitcom like I had kind of like a hack fantasy of what my career would be like right but i have to tell you it's so much better than anything i could have imagined and i love every minute of it and i hope i'm around for the the next part
0: i love it um you're doing something really great with this show which is it's available on streaming as well as live on stage because a lot of the people i interview if you're not in la or whatever you might not get to see it but people can stream your show right
1: Yes, um, How we does have a that streaming work? version because so many people um, uh, who are fans of the new comedy bible and want to see my play do not live in L.A. Right? Because uh, we are performing the Hudson see- Theater as we say we're disappearing weekends on Saturday at eight p.m. and Sunday at three p.m. the matinee, and um, and so I wanted to make it available so people can get that. Install at Escape dot com
0: so people can watch it online. That's awesome, and they should watch it online. Um, Final question. Was it cathartic getting through this process? Like, what has it meant to you to be on, uh, to have the show up and running now and you're telling the story and it's, and it's there?
1: Yes, it's been, it's been very cathartic for me as somebody who has suffered from anxiety attacks. Um, I think we, uh, I know we've all heard this from the twelve step programs so that we're as sick as our secrets. Secrets is a big part of magic, keeping secrets it's also a big part of trauma secrets, and to be able to every weekend go tell my secrets has been friggin liberating
0: Wow, and you just feel it at the at the, at the yeah. end of the show you're like you feel lighter
1: yeah, I feel like uh I did the unspeakable i I told our family secrets.
0: Yeah. But by doing it, I think you empower other people to, to do the same or to start to explore that. I think it's yes. your you're other people are included in your in your journey and empowered by it, which I I felt when I was watching it. Well, congratulations. It was so fun to talk to you. Good luck with the rest of your show. Again, I just thought it was so well crafted and so rich and economical and just everything was so like, oh, they thought about that. And, and, and I love the way the magic tricks were interwoven in, in a way that enhanced the story. It was, it was just great. So I hope a lot of people watch it. I hope it runs for as long as you want it to run, goes to Broadway, all the rest of it. And uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, Judy.
1: Thank you, Dennis. Thank you for spreading the word.
0: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks again to Judy Carter. Go see her show, A Death Defying Escape, if you're in L.A., and you can also stream it from wherever you are in the world. You can learn about both of those options at deathdefyingescape.com. All right, speaking of theater, this happened. I got to see my friend Howie Scora's new show. It's called Gaslight House. Uh, Howie is an old friend. We used to be in a writer's group together, and it's been so cool to see him blossom as a playwright. This is his third show. I've interviewed him about his previous two and uh, hope to do something with this one. Nadia Ginsburg, another past podcast guest, is in it. It's about a crazy family. And it was just so nice to be out in the theater with some other friends and uh, supporting a friend with a show. Uh, that's There's a great feeling about that. I love it. So um, lots of fun theater options, which is so nice about where we've gone, where we've come through. So that's enough for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.